Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? And do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, and not only because of the possible punishment that you'll receive, but as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full-time governing. Give to everyone who you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we've come today to worship you. And now as we consider your word, we pray for the light of understanding to our hearts and minds. Amen. Uh, Well, we're here uh, today continuing our new and fresh uh, summer sermon series that we just started last week on the book of Romans, or the letter of, to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul. And so over these next few weeks and months, we will journey together uh, through this letter, through these books. And we have some of our own Avon Hopers who are going to be contributing along the way, including Lincoln Alabaster is coming up, and Jael Amador sang for us today. We look forward to hearing from both of them during this series. Now, it was our 10, or it is our 10, I should say, that we would uh, continue uh, systematically through Romans chapter by chapter. Last week, we talked about Romans chapter 2. That means that this week, we should be talking about Romans chapter 3, but how could we resist uh, not studying the most popular Bible text uh, this week? all over the news. And so on uh, Thursday, we had to, I had to shift gears, right? Okay, no more Romans 3. I mean, we're in the book of Romans still. Let's go to Romans chapter uh, 13. So for those of you who don't uh, know, on Thursday, Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, used uh, Romans 13 to try to, let's say, quote, hush, hush. Uh, Christians, uh, many of whom who had uh, voted for the, uh, the administration, but also who had expressed concern and outrage over the treatment of uh, those who were coming into the country at the border. And so you know the situation, of, and if you've been watching the news at all, at all, Border Patrol are arresting people coming across the border, and in particular, separating families. So uh, children are sent to a detention a center where they're being uh, held and the, the parents are being 
arrest, arrested. So uh, Sessions went to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he was talking to a group of Christians, and he wanted to just calm them down by giving them a hush. And so in a speech to his, quote, church friends, uh, he used Romans chapter 13 like this. He says, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purpose. That was uh, Jeff Sessions quoting Romans chapter uh, 13. So let's spend a little time talking about Romans chapter 13 uh, today. Um, so Romans chapter 13 is preceded, of course, by Romans chapter 12, which we will talk about in the future, but a little highlight of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 uh, it articulates the four kinds of relationships that followers of Jesus will have with other, uh, uh, other things. So the relationship to God, uh, the relationship to ourselves, uh, the relationship to one another, and the relationship to our enemies. So those are the four kinds of relationships that are articulated in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 13 continues on introducing three uh, other uh, relationships. The relationships that a follower of Jesus uh, will have to the state, uh, to the law, and to the day of the Lord's return. So in total, there are seven relationships that are defined and articulated and explained in Romans chapter uh, 12 and 13. Now, it should be just noted here as kind of a side note that Bible uh, students, Bible scholars have for, for years debated in Romans chapter 13 on the meaning of governing authorities. That's the, the term. Some Bible students assert that this is not talking about the civil government, but about the divine supernatural authorities that work behind the scenes. And of course, the Apostle Paul actually talks about these divine authorities of other places in the Bible. And so there's some debate whether this is talking about civil uh, or state governments or not, but most Bible students indeed uh, do think that this uh, Romans 13 is talking about uh, civil government. But I just give you that as, as a, a side note, that there is some uh, debate on that. So as we again look at Romans 13, we have to ask ourselves what is uh, going on. Now what's interesting, uh, I think, about what, what's happening here is Paul's writing to this, uh, this group of believers in uh, Rome at a time when there was no such thing as a Christian authority. Uh, the, the, the hearers that were hearing this letter that Paul was writing for the first time, they had no experience being governed by Christians, by followers of Jesus. They only knew either Jewish rule, uh, the Sanhedrin, the political uh, government of the, of the Jewish people, or uh, Roman rule, and neither of these were, were uh, necessarily kind to the followers of Jesus. In fact, they were often openly uh, hostile. And so in this context, Paul is writing and telling them, hey, these governing authorities, they're not Christian governing authorities, they're not followers of Jesus. These governing authorities have been uh, uh, designed by God. They've been established by God. And that had to be somewhat, um, maybe even shocking to hear, that God had established governing authorities the governing authorities of the, of the Jewish people and the governing authorities of the Romans and that God was uh, behind this. Uh, Paul is also unequivocal in making this clear. There is no, no authority. Verse 1, there is no authority except what God has 
established. Uh, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul emphasizes that again. And then finally, he who rebels against such authorities rebels against God. So Paul is making it clear. Hey, uh, Christians, the, the newborn Christian church, the, the believers, the followers of Jesus are not to be anarchist. Not to be just like government is, is evil. We get, get rid of the whole thing. They are to follow the governing uh, rules of, that the society set in which they uh, live in. And these are not Christian authorities. And so Paul is pretty uh, much definitive on this. With that said, uh, we have to ask ourselves today, knowing what we know now, are these assertions that Paul making uh, unconditional? Or are they uh, conditional? Is God saying that every uh, regime, every dictator, every tyrant has been established by God? Is that what, what this message is getting at? You know, God put in, in place the, the dictators of the past or the, or the horrible, horrific regimes or the tyrants. Is that what uh, Paul is asserting here? And so with that in mind, I would uh, ask you to consider uh, these biblical acts of uh, civil uh, disobedience. Uh, first, we think of the story of uh, Pharaoh and the Hebrew uh, midwives. This is in the time of Moses. Uh, the Hebrew mid midwives were instructed by the Pharaoh, the governing authority of the day. The, the midwives were instructed to make sure that the, the, the young uh, children, the young boys, were uh, murdered. Because there was just too many, there were too many people, and uh, the way to take care of that is by murdering the uh, children. And uh, we know the Bible tells us that the Hebrew midwives uh, refused this, but they, they did it uh, undercover. They, they, they didn't, uh, you know, march in the streets, they just didn't listen. Um, and of course, Moses was saved. If you remember the story, baby Moses was put in a little boat and his life was spared until the princess of Egypt found him. Uh, another act of civil disobedience, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, another governing uh, ruler, uh, he issued an edict that all of his subjects must uh, fall down and worship this golden image that he had established in a, in a great plain. And uh, we also re re read that there were three um, men, three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who uh, disobeyed. And uh, again, if you remember this famous story, they uh, were punished by being thrown into a furnace that was designed to be their execution chamber, but God shows up in the furnace, thus, thus uh, solidifying the fact that God was behind these acts of civil disobedience. They get thrown into the furnace and God shows up in the furnace and rescues them. They're pulled out, and they're safe. We also remember the act of civil disobedience when uh, Darius, another king in the time of Daniel, made a decree that for 30 days, nobody should pray to anyone but himself. And uh, we read this, the story of Daniel, who was also part of the governing authority, part of the government. He disobeyed, blatantly disobeyed that uh, law. He went right home, and he uh, apparently prayed in a place where everyone could see him so that everyone was very clear that he was being civilly disobedient. He didn't go hide. He didn't go do it somewhere in secret. He did exactly as he had done day in and day out before. He went and prayed 
publicly so that everybody could see that he was civilly disobedient. He was arrested. He was thrown again in what was designed to be an execution chamber. And again, God shows up. Morning comes. They go to, to, to imagining they're going to find Daniel's uh, um, dead body. And Daniel is alive and asserts that uh, the angel of the Lord has come and rescued him. And so again, we see God behind civil disobedience. And finally, and there are many other stories of civil disobedience in the, the Bible, or at least civil protest, but finally we think of the story of the apostles and the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was the religious uh, body that uh, was overseeing uh, the capital of Judea in the time of the Roman government. So they were under the Roman government, and yet they were taking care of many of the day-to-day -day political uh, issues and so the apostles were preaching and teaching about Jesus and they're called into the Sanhedrin this political body and we read the narrative in Acts chapter 4 uh, they called them in the apostles again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus but Peter and John replied which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or him that's a great question by the way what's right in God's eyes to listen to you or him you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Civil disobedience. And so we know, you know the story. They go right back out and they just keep on talking about Jesus. And they're arrested time and time again. They are clearly, overtly, civilly uh, disobedient. So the principle here I think is pretty clear. Uh, in the words of John R.W. Stott, when laws are enacted which contradict God's laws. We have this on the screen. When laws are enacted which contradict God's laws, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. So Stott is going further and saying, hey, hey, it's not just, oh, you know, you know when, when you know, bad laws are enacted and authorities you know, do things that are wrong, we, you know, we should we get to just mind our own business. Stott says it's our Christian duty as followers of Jesus to be civilly disobedient. Disobedience becomes a Christian duty. We are commanded uh, to uh, do what God has asked us to do, not what uh, humans have asked us to do. And so this, this issue, Romans chapter 13, clearly Romans chapter 13 is conditional. If the government is operating in conjunction with God's laws, then by all means the government should be, should be uh, uh, the one in, in charge and we should be respectful of what's happening. But when then when God's laws come up against the human authority and human laws, then there's a problem, and followers of Jesus must follow uh, God's laws. In the words of the apostles at the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must re obey God rather than human beings. Um, Oscar Coleman, a historian who wrote uh, the book the, St the, the State in the New Testament, the State in the New Testament uh, says this, few sayings, and he's talking about Romans chapter 13. He's talking about exactly what happened, by the way, on Thursday. Few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one. As soon as Christians, out of loyalty to the gospel of Jesus, offer resistance to a state's totalitarian claim, the representatives of the state or their collaborationist theological advisors are accustomed to appeal to this saying of Paul as if Christians are here commanded to endorse and thus abet the crimes of the totalitarian state. The proof of the conditional nature of Romans chapter 13 is 
clear. It's also clear in the language, by the way. Uh, the, the language says, for rulers, this is again Romans chapter 13, for ru- rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Well, maybe most of the time that's true, but what if that's not true? What if rulers do hold terror for those who do right? And we know you don't have to you know, be a historian and know all of the times when this was indeed true, when rulers did uh, demand a, a terror of people for who were doing uh, right. When that's the case, then, hey, God's law, not man's law. The text goes on to say, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But what happens when the servant isn't for your good? Romans chapter 13 is clearly uh, conditional. Yes, governing authorities are there for, for us until they're not. And when they're not there for us, then there's trouble. When God's values are trumped by the values of the government, the mandate of Romans 13 is nullified, and the followers of Jesus are obligated to civilly resist. Kyle, I don't think anybody got it. I don't know. Leanne, but you guys were here this morning. Okay. All right. Anyway, it was deep in there. John Stott, ask me later, I'll explain it. Kyle will explain it. Um, you want me to read it again? Okay, let's read it again. When God's values are trumped by the values of the government, the mandate of Romans 13 is nullified, and the followers of Jesus are obligated, obligated to, to civilly resist. Thank you. All right. Um, Stott continues, John Stott. By the way, and I mentioned this in the early service, you know, uh, John Stott, English theologian, Highly admired by our friends Christ Church, who, who rent from us and our, our good friends, our, our compatriots, and uh, worship here on Sunday morning. They had a memorial service for John Stott back in 2011. Some of us were here for that uh, service. Great theologian. Uh, he writes this, as we continue, the principle is clear. We are sub- to submit to the state right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. Right up to the point. So the, 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 the governing authorities are there for us until they're not. And when they're not, then we have an obligation to civilly resist as followers of Jesus. Uh, in light of uh, Jeff Sessions' assertion, or Attorney General Sessions, uh, maybe, maybe he could have an interpreted Romans chapter 13 a little bit better if he had gone back and read in context. Now, no offense to, to Attorney General Sessions because this is a, uh, a common problem for most people who read, read the Bible. You, know, if you find that one verse and you're like, this, this is it. This is it. It's my verse. It says exactly what I want it to say. By the way, God help us. Preachers do this sometimes, you know. They'll, uh, in the, in the, in the, they'll watch a movie or they'll see something and they'll be like, oh, that was so good. And then they go and find the text that says what they wanted to say. You know what I'm saying? Oh, man. If you, if you catch us ever doing that, you got to, I saw what you did there. You know, you, we, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to get out of the Bible, not put into the Bible, right? And so, so the way to do that is to read text in context, right? So you can't just read Romans chapter 13 alone. You have to recognize what Romans chapter 12 said. And so if Attorney General Sessions had gone back and just read, I mean, just a few verses back, 
a whole different context. Romans chapter 12, uh, starting with verse 10, says this. This is right before Romans 13. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and don't be conceited. I mean, look what Romans, Romans 12, just before Romans chapter 13, is, is clear. I mean, practice hospitality? I mean, for goodness sake, the, the people are, are coming uh, 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 across the borders, and I mean, I, I don't, whatever you feel about that, I mean, practice hospitality. Separating children from their, their parents? I mean, there's no way that that's falling in line with this command. I mean, this is a command practice hospitality. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to practice hospitality. Even, even those for, for those who, who, who may be against you, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. These are the commands of the Lord found in Romans chapter 12, just a few verses earlier than Romans chapter 13. There's a more a relevant command on how to deal with a stranger at your gates, you'd be hard-pressed to find it. Practice hospitality. You know, while we are uh, considering this subject of, of governing authorities, we might as well go all in. Uh, so let's take just a moment to remember the historic understanding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on this issue of, of uh, governance. Um, by the way, it was just a historic understanding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There are some interesting historic understandings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church across all the spectrum of, 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 of different things you can believe, but this one in particular is particularly relevant to today. So the historic understanding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that it has taken toward, you know, we're, this is the Seventh-day Adventist community. I recognize not everybody here is uh, Seventh-day Adventist, and we're glad that you're here if you're whatever religious background you are. But just let's take a moment to think about the Seventh-day Adventist tradition on this issue of uh, governance, and particularly governance of uh, the United States. Now, with this in mind, uh, remember this. There are about 30 years between the authorship of the letter to the Romans and the authorship of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the final book of the New Testament. So 30 years between Paul's writings in Romans to the church in Romans and the writing of the book of Revelation by John, who recorded what he saw given to him in vision. During uh, this time, the newborn church experienced an incredible amount of turmoil and persecution. So much so that by the time that you get to Revelation, the 30 years have passed, uh, Revelation takes an entirely different view of worldly uh, government. Uh, during this time, the state is no longer uh, seen as this benevolent servant of God and uh, takes on the, the place of an ally 
of the devil. There's just, there's just no way to get, get around it. By the time you get to Revelation, there's a whole different perspective of, of the governance of the world. So in Romans, Paul is saying, hey, governance is here for our good, but 30 years, a lot goes on. By the time we get to Revelation, it's a whole different story. And so the Revelation in, uh, in uh, Revelation, the Revelation in Revelation is a whole uh, different uh, story. Revelation chapter 13 in particular gets very specific and talks about two uh, world powers that are described as a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. Now, some of you are, you know, you're flashing back for those of you who are from the Adventist tradition and, uh, you, you know, you remember going to, you remember Daniel and Revelation seminars? Has anyone been to one of those? For the next 56 nights, we will talk about Daniel and Revelation. Wow. Um, anyway, so, so flashback, but bear with me, bear with me, because Revelation chapter 13, which is a, a, a big one in, in, in those seminars, does hold some relevance uh, for us today. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11 says this, and this is John, and he's been seeing these visions, and he's writing this down, and he says that, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a giant, a, a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered for them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded, but the sword had... Uh, by the sword and yet had lived. The second beast was given power to give breath the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Wow, that's a mouthful. You can go read it in more detail. Let me just say this. The Adventist tradition has historically interpreted this second beast as a description of the United States government exercising its authority like the medieval Roman uh, church with authoritarianism. This is the historic Adventist interpretation of <laughs> Revelation chapter 13. So again, we're not doing Revelation seminar. You can go back and study this in more detail, but the implication is uh, pretty uh, clear that there is a concern historically, not just with Adventists, but about how governance is enacted, particularly the governance of the United States. Ranko Stefanovic, in maybe his magnum opus, his commentary, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, writes this, no single religious political ent entity in modern history matches the description of the earth beast as does the United States of America. The United States emerged on the historical arena after the med medieval ecclesiastical system had received its mortal wound. This nation has become a major dominant power in the world. As the leading democratic world power, it has been admired for its political and religious tolerance and freedoms. Yet as military and financial power as a military and financial powerhouse, it is being it has it has been highly respected by some, but feared by many. Today, the United States exercises a major role in world affairs. So far, this power clearly resembles the two-horned beast. Speaking in historical terms, what will make the two-horned lamb begin to speak like a dragon is yet to be seen. Revelation 13, however, seems to, be, to, to foretell a key 
religious, political role for the United States in the final crisis. Now, you may be into this, or you may not be, but it's just important to note that as a, as a denomination, as a tradition, Seventh-day Adventists have always been very skeptical of governing authorities, including the governing authority of the United States of America. And you consider the power that the United States have. I mean, there's a lot of statistics, but and you've probably heard this a million times before, but the United States spends more on national defense than China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, France, United Kingdom, and Japan combined. So there's all the next seven nations combined. The United States spends more on defense than all of them. We're talking about an incredible world power, like the, quite frankly, like the world has never uh, seen before. And so, not here to fearmonger, just to remind you, hey, skepticism about the nature of governance has been at heart, the heart of this Adventist movement from, since day one. John Stott, again, writes, he says, Revelation 13, he, not Adventist, by the way, Revelation 13 is a satanic parody of Romans chapter 13. That's Stott. He's saying, look, Revelation 13 and Romans chapter 12 go together. And, and Revelation 13 is a parody. Hey, you know, yes, maybe there is a time or was a time when the governing authorities were acting on your, on your behalf, but things have uh, changed. And we need to be aware and awake to the things as they change. Now, just a, a side note on the rise of American uh, nationalism that may foretell where things are headed. You know, uh, being patriotic is uh, one thing, but fervent uh, nationalism is a different thing. And we've seen in, you know, the last couple years in particular, this rise of just fervent, fervent uh, nationalism. Uh, you know, one, one small example of this nationalism gone haywire is, is this. I think in, in May, the National uh, Football League enacted a new policy that players must stand during uh, the national anthem. Okay, I mean, if you've been watching the news at all, you know uh, this, this story and the controversy over this. Now, keeping in mind that the national anthem itself was only first introduced at sports games in, in uh, 1918 at the World Series, and so the idea that the national anthem was this you know, thing that has existed since the beginning of the, of the uh, Union uh, is not... Uh, true, but the kneeling was initiated by Colin Kaepernick. You know the story, who was uh, protesting uh, the unfair treatment of people of color by the police. So he first he was he was going to sit, all right. He was going to sit on the sidelines, and then uh, uh, one of the one of his friends, one of the coaches, happened to be a white guy, by the way, said, "Hey, you should kneel." By the way, the 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 official statement of of, of protest during the national anthem is that you would sit. So if you want to protest the national anthem, you just remain standing, and hey, that's your right as an American citizen. You should be able to do that. So that's what he was going to do. But then his friend said, hey, why don't you kneel? Kneeling is actually more respectful than sitting. I mean, in every other context of anything, kneeling is respectful, right? I mean, we don't do it here very often because just we don't. But you know, you go to a lot of churches, and if they pray, you're going to get down on your knees, right? Because kneeling is, re is, is respectful, but, but his kneeling was seen as just a blatant uh, act of disrespect. And, you know, I know this gets very political, and you may be on one side or the other on this. 
but I just want to, you know, give a little heads up to what, what, what seems to be going on where we have this nationalism where we're obsessed about little things about whether someone is kneeling or standing. Now, the NFL, in my opinion, uh, doesn't have a great leg to stand on when it comes to this issue. No, the moral standing is not high. You know, the NFL has known for years the physical and particularly mental toll that is expended on its employees. I used to be a big fan of the National Football League. This particular issue convicted me that you know, the, the National Football League is not, is not going to be for, for me. I remember I mean, some of my fondest memories as a child are watching, uh, watching my Washington Redskins win three uh, Super Bowls. I remember John Riggins in 1983. I just have to mention this because we are in New York and it's, you know, fun to tease in New Yorkers and John Riggins running on fourth and one into the end zone is emblazoned in my mind as a great childhood memory. But we now know that the NFL was hiding the fact that its employees, it, their bodies were being damaged, their minds, not just the bodies. I mean, it's one thing. NFL players knew that their legs were being damaged and that some of them couldn't walk when they were 40 or 50 or not walk very well. But what they didn't know is all those little hits that they were experiencing were, were uh, creating chronic traumatic brain injury. And it was affecting their minds. And we're still seeing NFL players, former NFL players who will shoot themselves at age 45 because their brains are basically, in essence, shot. And the NFL knew that these things were happening, that this was happening, that their bodies of their NFL players were being ravaged and their minds were being ravaged. And they hid these findings for years. And so, again, it's just somewhat ironic that here now you have an issue, another issue that is perceived as a moral issue, whether a guy stands or sits, and that's the issue that you're going to take a stand on? Nationalism. You know, somebody gets up and says it's not, it's not patriotic that uh, this person is kneeling and not, not standing. Nationalism has the potential to be an incredible problem. We were seeing this growing, fervent nationalism. It all speaks back to what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 13, but also consider Daniel chapter 3, which we mentioned before, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Nations and peoples of every language uh, came and they were commanded, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, so a song was going to play out. And as soon as you hear the song, you have to take a particular physical stature. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down. In this case, it was fall down. It wasn't stand up. You must fall down and worship in the image of, of the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Called to take a particular stature, and that was to represent your your, your, your nationalism, your zeal for the governing uh, uh, body. And then again, we consider Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 16 says that this beast power forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads. Now, this mark of the beast has been expounded many times before. We don't need to get into that. The reality is we don't really know what's going on uh, here at all. But the point being is there has been a historic, particularly in Adventism, concern 
about the nature of governance, in particular, the role of the United States in uh, governance. And we're seeing little indications that uh, freedom and uh, fairness, and in particular, liberty of conscience are in danger. Meanwhile, Jesus himself says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all will be well. Well, this is a little disturbing. A little, we got into a little Bible prophecy. We got a little soapbox of NFL bashing. For <laughs> Bear with me. Uh, a little depressing, quite frankly. Maybe a little scary. And so what hope do we have? What hope are we left with? Well, thankfully, there is uh, hope. You know, we can turn to the narrative and the story of uh, Jesus, who, by the way, submitted to the governing uh, authorities, but also transcended them. Uh, in Matthew chapter 27, we read these words about Jesus. Uh, Jesus stood before the governor. This is on the, the, the day of his death. Now, this is pretty profound in and of itself. Jesus submitted to the governing authorities. Jesus stood before the governor. Now, he did not have to do that, Right? We're told that he could have called, you know, called a legion of supernatural forces to come and rescue him, SWAT team, SEAL team, whatever you call you know, that, that legion to come and rescue him. But Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Simple response. Nothing more than necessary. When he was accused by the chief priests, and the elders, he gave no answer. He was uh, civilly protesting. He didn't, you know, fight them off. And get, he just didn't give an answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus, he protested uh, civilly, and he also was submissive to the governing authorities, and Jesus died. He died. Uh, but Jesus also transcended human authority. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we read these words, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the un unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. This is the great truth of the Bible, that Jesus was submissive to the governing authorities. He practiced civil uh, protest, and he died. But not only did he die, he rose again and transcended the human authority, and now he sits at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission him. And because of his death, we have hope that despite the broken nature of the world, despite the fact that our political systems are broken, despite the fact that uh, our, 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 our rulers, our governors oftentimes end up being people that we really can't trust in, that we can't look up to, the great hope is that God has done for us what no ruler can do or ever will do, and that Jesus is Lord. By the way, that was a, an act of protest on behalf of the Christians, right? The idea was that you would say Caesar is Lord. Christians, Jesus is Lord. That's civil protest. No, no, no. You think, you think Caesar is, is Lord? No, Jesus is Lord. Let me tell you this. Some of you here are like, I cannot wait for the next election. 
Are any of you feeling that way? When is the next election? Two years? Two and a half years? And you're like, in the next election, we're going to elect our saviors, the Democrats. And the, it's, this is New York, especially, right? You've got a lot, of, a lot of Democrats here. And so the, say the Democrats are going to come, and then glorious, new dawn is going to break, and all is going to be well, and truth and justice in the American way will you know, spread across the land. And then when that happens, some of the others of you are going to be like, oh, I can't wait till the next election, and then we'll elect some Republicans, and they'll come, and they'll change everything, and then they're going to make everything right, and we go on and on and on, and you know what? It's never going to work. None of them are going to do what needs to be done to make this world right and make this world new. We are in desperate shape if we don't have a God who is ultimately in charge and who has a plan for the future. And so thank God that Jesus, he, he, he submitted to governing authorities. He was civilly uh, protesting, but he, he submitted to the authorities. He died, he rose again, and now he sits at the right hand of God with authority and power to reign on high. And he has promised that things will not always be the way that they are now. That we, want, we aren't relying on the Democrats, and we aren't relying on the Republicans, that there is a new day coming. And in that new day, all things are going to be made new. In that time of those kings, Daniel writes... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to other people. This kingdom will crush all of the kingdoms of the world. There's not going to be any more uh, kingdoms. The United States of America and all of the other uh, World Cup finalist countries, they're going to be abolished. They're going to be gone and there's going to be a new uh, kingdom. And that, that kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever ever. We're going to close here. Romans chapter 13. I, I just bad, got this bad feeling. I'm just looking at Kyle. I know, Kyle. I'm sorry. I know. Kyle's our timekeeper. We're landing the plane. Romans chapter 13, the next portion after the portion that Attorney General Sessions uh, did not read. He went 1 through 7. We're going a little bit further. In 13, verse 10, listen to this. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this and understand the present time that we're in. The hour has already come for you, and so wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. This statement that Paul said way back 2,000 years ago is even more true today. God's uh, plan of rescue is closer today than it's ever been, and so we can have hope despite the brokenness of the world that God is doing his work. And as we embrace that work, God is able to do in us now what we cannot do for ourselves and give us that ultimate hope for new life and a new world where brokenness is repaired and all things are made new. May we today embrace this work of God and experience his transformative power in our characters that we can be empowered toward justice. And if this requires that we must civilly protest or be disobedient, may we be empowered by God to live lives unafraid with hope for a new future. Amen.